This is an AMI podcast. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joy Gupta. We've all heard about genes. We may even somewhat understand what genes are and what they do. In this special one-hour episode, we explore the research into genes and the human eye and find out how our genes may contribute to various eye conditions. This episode is presented in collaboration with Fighting Blindness Canada. FBC leads the fight against blindness by raising and directing funds to accelerate the development and availability of treatments and cures. FBC partners with leading researchers in the field of vision care and puts on exciting events all year round. For more on their work, visit fightingblindness.ca. Later on in the program, we'll meet a genetics counselor to find out when, why, and how to get a genetic test. We'll also learn about FPC's patient registry and why you might want to add your name to it. But first, let's start with the basics. What exactly is a gene? Lance Doucette is a researcher in genetics and passionate about the potential inherent in gene therapies and treatments. He joins us today to demystify the science around genetics and the ways our genes contribute to eye diseases. He joins us from Calgary, Alberta. Dr. Doucette, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you with us on the program today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for reaching out. It's always a pleasure to work with uh, Fighting Blindness Canada, so I'm very excited. So tell us a little bit about what genes are and, and what sort of a role they play in our bodies. Sure. So the simplest explanation for what a gene is and what we use in the genetics world is it's a unit of DNA, or a unit of your genome that codes for a protein. And what I mean by a protein in this sense is a structural part. So maybe like part of your your muscles are all made up of protein or some sort of enzymatic molecule like that helps break down fats in your body or maybe helps break down that little bit of alcohol you had from from your glass of wine. These are all controlled by your your individual genes. Mm -hmm. There are about 23,000 in the human body, I believe, at the latest, latest estimate. And one thing I guess it's, people really need to know before we continue on with our conversation is every human has two copies of every gene in their body. We kind of, it's kind of a redundancy where if one gene stops working, you have a second copy ready to kind of kick in. So when we think about genes, you, you know, they, they do so many different things in the body, but what about eye diseases specifically? What role do genes play in vision? I mean, not just eye disease, but in making sure you have good vision. Sure. So you have some genes that control things like early development. So this is going to be the, the genes that control the formation of the eye and the brain and these kind of things when you're but, but a wee embryo. But then later on in adult life and as you grow, you have genes that control you know, how the eye grows and, then how, and again how the eye functions at the end of the day. So as we know, light comes in through the front of the eye at the cornea and then hits onto the back of the, the eye called the retina. And the retina is a really interesting, a really fascinating nervous tissue, which contains a number of metabolically active processes. The the eye is probably one of the most metabolically active processes in the body. And Mm. 
what happens is as the as the light comes in through the eye, it strikes these cells in the back of the eye called photoreceptors. And these photoreceptors undergo what a metabolic cycle. So they have a cycle, a, a light molecule hits, you get a big chemical change, and then that creates an impulse which travels along your optic nerve to the to your brain to be interpreted as sight. So you need the genes to be controlling all the small components of the photoreceptors to ensure that you're getting those proper cycles working and that you're getting that translation of light to vision as you would in the back of the brain. So then how do genes contribute to eye diseases? So as we talked a little bit about just just now, that there are these cycles that happen in your photoreceptor cells mm-hmm. that are dependent on a gene creating a protein which helps carry out that process. So in eye diseases, when you have a, we'll call it a lesion or a, a genetic mutation or a variation, I'll kind of probably use all three, they all effectively mean the same thing. When you end up with a, a gene that is less than functional or non-functional, you interrupt that cycle. Mm-hmm. So there might be six or seven, you kind of picture it like a circular thing, and you probably have six to eight different components here. If one of those components of the cycle gets disrupted, you end up with an incomplete cycle. And this is what happens in many different um, forms of eye disease, particularly things like macular degeneration or retinitis pigmentosa. You're interrupting this cycle. You can have, of course, uh, early development issues, things like Axenfeld rieger syndrome, which brings about things like cataracts and glaucoma. This is a more of an early step developmental issue where you have genes that are disrupted or non-functional where, the, um, where they're going to be responsible for creating the eye. So having a lesion or a mutation in genes that do either one of these things can end up leading to di- differing eye conditions. That's so interesting because, see, I always thought, and this just goes to show you, I, I mean, I always thought that if because it's something that's in your genes and you're sort of you're born with that inheritance, that any eye disease that stem from a genetic defect or a, a problem with your genes, that those diseases would necessarily manifest in early life. Are you saying that you could have genetic eye conditions that manifest later on in life as well? You could go through, you know, childhood and adolescence without a problem. And suddenly as you get older, bam, you've got a problem. Absolutely. Um, so before I should have done this earlier, but usually when I do these little chats with Fighting Blindness Canada, I kind of put up the little, I am a PhD researcher. I am not a medical doctor kind of shield mm-hmm. in front of me. So anything that I say in terms of the clinic should be regarded as such. However, you are absolutely correct that there are instances where it's not something you have at birth. So like I said, if you have a developmental defect, say when you're an embryo, something like Axenfeld rieger syndrome, that will be something notable at birth. Mm-hmm. However, if you've got these, um, say we come back to these cycles again that exist in your photoreceptor cells, if you disrupt this cycle, it may take time for that cycle to break down. Mm-hmm. And you might have okay vision in the beginning, but you don't, like for something like retinitis pigmentosa, which has more of a juvenile onset, in your teens and maybe even early 20s, you might start noticing that your peripheral vision has started to go a little bit or that your night vision is not quite what it used to be. Mm-hmm. The, the eye is really quite resilient, so it does take some time for that damage to happen. But that disease will also progress over time and get worse as mm-hmm. that cycle begins to as that cycle breaks down further and further. I bet you get asked this all the time. So I'm sorry when I ask you a question that you must find 
very repetitive. But a lot of us who took, you know, high school biology know about the interactions between genes and the environment. We have a genotype and a phenotype. So how likely is it that just because you have something in your genetic inheritance that will actually manifest as an eye condition or an other condition? I mean, what role does environment play in all of this? This, this is, you're right, this is a very common question, but it's absolutely a fantastic question and one that we don't entirely understand perfectly right now at the moment. So I talked a little bit about like accidental Rieger syndrome and retinitis pigmentosa. Um, I can throw other diseases in there like choroideremia, Stargardt macular dystrophy. These kind of lump themselves into what we in genetics would call quote unquote simple or Mendelian, if we all remember Gregor mm. Mendel and his pea plants, which I am always loath to talk about because they <laughs> always come up. Um, <laughs> so these are what we call our monogenetic diseases or our simple diseases. If you have a mutation that is associated with this condition, and we know that it is a damaging mutation because you can have variations in your genes that are not damaging. This is what causes the difference between me and you and me and the other fellow across the road and the way we look, how tall we are these kinds of things. But if we know that this is a damaging variation in a gene, then there's a very, very good chance that you're going to develop this condition. However, we have another set of conditions that we are called, that we call complex in mirroring the simple versus complex. These -hmm. conditions are things like age-related macular degeneration, glaucoma, where we know that there is a genetic component, but it is not as strongly associated as, say, your single monogenetic disorders, where it's caused by the mutation in a single gene. Mm -hmm. In macular degeneration, for example, we know that smoking is a very large contributor to the development. But we also know that if you have a first-degree relative, so if you have a brother or a sister or a first cousin or an aunt or an uncle who also have age-related macular degeneration, well, your chances of getting it are higher but not necessarily 100%. So there are really interesting interactions with between the genes and the environment saying that, well, just because you have a variation in a gene doesn't mean you're going to develop age-related macular degeneration. But if you do have um, some of those variations, or again, a first-degree relative who, or even in your family somewhere where there is AMD, you want to look at things like exposure to light, um, exposure to blue light, uh, I, although the science on that is a little wobbly sometimes, but you might want to cut back on smoking, for example, as we know that is a huge contributor to AMD. Now, I've been in high school maybe, oof, I say 20, 25 years ago, so you'll forgive me if I made a mistake here, but wasn't Mendelssohn also the one responsible for talking about dominant and recessive genes? Another bit of like uh, another bit of jargon that gets uh, punted about a lot in day-to-day discourse, and I think a lot of people don't understand what a dominant gene is or a recessive gene. Can you talk us through the science? Absolutely, and you, you definitely nailed that. That is exactly where the ideas of dominance and recessive came from, was the study of Mendel and his pea plants. The, so again, we, we go back and we talk about genetics and your genome. We all know, uh, well, we don't all know, but we have 23 chromosomes in our, in our genome. And for every one of those chromosomes, we have a pair, because like I said earlier, you get one pair, you get one set of genes from your mom, you get the other set of genes from your dad, and that creates the your genome. You have that redundant mm-hmm. second copy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So in a recessive condition, how that works is if you have one non-functional gene and one good, well-functioning gene, the good functioning gene actually masks that non-functional gene, takes over. That's where the redundancy kicks in. 
But in a recessive condition, you end up with two non-functional copies. And this will usually come from two parents who are carriers. That's the first example where you have one non-functional copy and one functional copy. The mom and dad will have a child, and they will each have a 50% chance of contributing their non-functional chromosome, which gives us a 25% chance of having a child that has two non-functional copies of their gene. This is what, and if they present with a disorder, that's what we call a recessive trait, when you have two non-functional copies. The dominant, on the other hand, is a little bit different, wherein the, you can have one bad copy or one non-functional copy of a gene, and that causes a disease presentation. In that case, it's very likely that your parent would have had the condition as well. Mm -hmm. I you hope mentioned you. dominant is one non-functional, recessive is mm -hmm. two non-functional, yeah. To, yeah, exactly. I mean, these are the kinds of things that determine things like your hair color and the color of your eyes and obviously eye diseases as well. You, you brought up the term being a genetic, a, a carrier. So if you were a parent and you're the carrier of a certain, uh, you know, a certain eye condition, does that necessarily mean, how likely is it, I suppose, that you yourself would manifest the symptoms of that eye condition? Could you be a carrier of something without actually having any symptoms? Absolutely. You can be an, an asymptomatic carrier for sure. And that occurs most commonly in recessive conditions where the carrier of the condition won't necessarily um, show any, any of the disease process. Mm. Though sometimes this can happen, in, especially in your sex-linked disorders. So in addition to the 23 chromosomes that we have, we have an X or a Y chromosome. Women have two Xs, men have an X and a Y. Um, speaking purely on biological gender on this on this topic. But mm -hmm. uh, in certain sex-linked disorders, uh, in women who would normally be carriers for these conditions, because they again, this is a situation where they would have one non-functional chromosome, the X chromosome, and then a second functional chromosome. They would be carriers for many of these sex-linked disorders. But the way the body deals with the sex chromosomes is that it randomly shuts down one of the other the uh, one of the X chromosomes. This is called lionization or X inactivation. Sometimes, just by chance, the body activates uh, inactivates more of the good chromosomes than the bad, and you end up with a female who is a carrier, showing a maybe a subclinical, and what that means is that a very mild version of the disease. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was clear. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have been thinking about our chat right now, and I've been I've been thinking about how this might be taken. I, would, I don't want to give people the impression that all eye conditions are genetically, that the genetics are responsible for all eye conditions. I mean, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe all eye conditions are somehow related to our genes. What do you say as the expert? Um, so again, I'm going to hide behind my little, I am not a, <laughs> I am not a clinician shield, as I tend to do. Um, but I personally can't think of any eye diseases off the top of my head outside of things like injuries mm. um, that would not be that would that would not have at least some genetic component to it. But again, we're talking things like complex diseases like glaucoma and age-related macular degeneration, where the contribution of genetics is a lot less figured out than, say, your simple monogenetic diseases. So, I, I would be surprised if to, to hear that there was absolute there were diseases where there were absolutely no genetic contribution whatsoever but mm -hmm. it might be it might be weak it might be strong depending on the condition and what we understand about it 
you you brought up the term being a carrier. So if you were a parent and you're the carrier of a certain, uh, you know, a certain eye condition, how likely is it, I suppose, that you yourself would manifest the symptoms of that eye condition? Could you be a carrier of something without actually having any symptoms? Absolutely. You can be an, an asymptomatic carrier for sure. And that occurs most commonly in recessive conditions where the carrier of the condition won't necessarily show any any of the disease process. Mm. Though sometimes this can happen, in, especially in your sex-linked disorders. So in addition to the 23 chromosomes that we have, we have an X or a Y chromosome. Women have two Xs, men have an X and a Y. Um, speaking purely on biological gender on this on this topic but mm-hmm. uh, in certain sex-linked disorders uh, in women who would normally be carriers for these conditions because they again this is a situation where they would have one non-functional chromosome the X chromosome and then a second functional chromosome they would be carriers for many of these sex-linked disorders but the way the body deals with the sex chromosomes is that it randomly shuts down one of the other the uh, one of the X chromosomes this is called lionization or X inactivation sometimes just by chance, the body activates, uh, inactivates more of the good chromosomes than the bad, and you end up with a female who is a carrier showing a maybe a subclinical, and what that means is that a very mild version of the disease. Mm-hmm. I hope that was clear. Yeah. Now, earlier you were saying, well, you could be the carrier of a genetic eye condition, but you may not have any symptoms yourself. But is that something you need to be thinking about nonetheless? Let's say you're planning to have children. Is that a, something you want to keep in mind if a, a close relative uh, of yours has an eye condition? Is that something that people need to be thinking about and having a conversation about? I know you touched on it briefly before, but could you just expand about the situations in which a person may want to consider uh, whether they might be passing on a genetic eye condition to their children? Sure. So knowing your family history is, is of course, very, very important. Uh, it's very important to you. It's very important to us as geneticists, as researchers, and it's very important to your physician in terms of the care that they're going to provide you and the things that they can do for you. So, of course, if you have a, an individual in your family that has a an eye condition, uh, let's call it retinitis pigmentosa for now, and let's mm-hmm. and retinitis pigmentosa is a very complex single. This is a very weird thing to say. It's a very complex simple disorder. Um, because while it is caused by single gene disorders, there are about 200 different genes out there that cause retinitis pigmentosa. Mm-hmm. So if you have, say, RP in your family, it's worth knowing, I think, that, um, and worth considering by you and your physician that you could potentially be a carrier of the condition if you're not currently presenting with the disease. Um, and with things like RP that are a little bit more common than your very rare conditions, it might be worth knowing that yes, you you have you could potentially be a carrier, and that your spouse could potentially be a carrier for either a second gene, or uh, and then knowing their family history as well would also be important in this case. Ultimately, is what I'm trying to say. Now, we'll be chatting with a genetic counselor later on in the program, but another term that a lot of people hear about are gene therapies, and they're supposed to be really cutting edge and have the potential to do all kinds of good things for your vision. For those of us who aren't quite in the know, what are gene therapies and how do they benefit people with eye conditions? Right. So honestly, this is the reason that I got into eye diseases in the first place, because Mm -hmm. the eye has become the first place where we have seen good, successful gene therapies. So the FDA has just approved a little while ago. The pandemic has made time meaningless, so I think maybe this was more like two years ago. (laughs) Um, 
a drug called Luxterna, which is mm -hmm. used to treat um, a condition called Leber's congenital amaurosis. And this is a, the first FDA-approved gene therapy ever released. And the idea is, remember earlier we talked a little bit about how there are these cycles that happen in your photoreceptors or in your eyes. Mm -hmm. The idea is that we replace the non-functional portion of that cycle by directly adding the gene back into the eye. And this is uh, usually brought about with something called an adeno-associated virus or an AAV. This is a viral vector or a viral piece of viral DNA effectively, which has been completely decommissioned of anything harmful from the virus. So the, you're not getting a, a harmful virus injected or anything like that. And you put the, the gene that you want back in. And this will allow us to replace the gene directly into the eye, replacing that part of the broken cycle, allowing vision to happen. And what we've seen from Luxterna is that individuals who get it seem to have a little bit more improved vision, which is surprising because um, when photoreceptors die, they don't tend to regenerate. Uh, but what we're seeing is that the, func the photoreceptors that are left in the individuals who are getting these gene therapies are actually now be able to function better because they've had mm -hmm. that piece of the cycle replaced. So these people are starting to renew a little bit of vision that they didn't have, which is fantastic. And while it's not perfect or, or out for every disease yet, the more we understand about, especially these single gene disorders, again, like RP, like Leber's congenital amaurosis, Starkart macular dystrophy, the more we understand about how these genes work and what they do, the closer we get to gene therapies for these individuals. So it really becomes the importance of research at the end of the day to understand the functional consequences of not having a defective gene, what are the consequences of putting it back, what are the consequences of doing the surgery, et cetera, right? So it's important for us to understand all these things. And it's a very exciting time with the development of all these of multiple gene therapies. I think if you had looked at something like clinicaltrials.gov, which is where all the clinical trials in the world get listed, if you had looked for gene therapy 10 years ago, you probably would have seen a handful. Now it is just jam-packed with different ideas and genetic technologies. So we are at kind of a, a great time and a precipice of developing these fantastic technologies. It sounds very cutting edge. Lance Doucette, thank you very much for being on the program today. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And you too. Thank you very much. Uh, just again, like to thank Fighting Blindness Canada for having me on. It's always been a pleasure working with with the group, and uh, yeah, thanks so much. Our next guest is Jill Bies. She is a genetics counselor at Maritime Medical Genetic Services, and she joins us today from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Jill Bies, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you with us on the program. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's beautiful, sunny in Nova Scotia, um, and I appreciate uh, being asked to join you today. So Jill, those of us who aren't in the know, what exactly do you do? So as a genetic counselor, we are master's level trained and certified as allied health professionals. So our main goal is helping individuals and families to understand and adapt to the sort of various medical, psychological, and familial implications of genetic conditions. Um, so we would work with individuals and families uh, to obtain their family and medical histories and to interpret this information to sort of assess for the chance of a specific uh, genetic condition occurring or reoccurring. 
Um, we hope to be able to provide education about the inheritance of a genetic condition, testing options, maybe some information on management, prevention, resources, research. Um, I think genetic counseling is kind of an interesting term because really we're there to help educate and promote informed decisions um, for individuals that meet with us uh, because it really is their choice as to what information they wish to receive and how they wish to use that. We try to help individuals really understand information if they're choosing genetic testing, that it's very complex information, and we hope to provide them with all of the possible outcomes of testing and, and uh, again, sort of help the individuals and families understand how genetics contributes to their condition and uh, help them adapt to that. You mentioned it's a way for families to make informed decision. What are the reasons would you give for getting a genetic test? Why is this something that families should think about doing? Um, I think with uh, information and education about genetic testing, um, that it can help to people to identify the underlying uh, cause or sort of why did this happen? Oftentimes when something is mm -hmm. genetic, but you don't see it in the family history, that seems like a confusing thing when genetic conditions can sort of occur brand new in an individual. It might help for a family to understand how was the condition inherited and is there a chance that anyone else in the family might be at risk to develop the same condition. For some, it may allow for earlier diagnosis and, and uh, not have to go through as many invasive tests. It might provide for predictive testing for individuals who are at risk for a condition but not yet symptomatic. I think sometimes it can help to better understand the prognosis around that particular condition and the information might be helpful in life planning or family planning. For some, it may be helpful uh, to find out whether what is identified is isolated. Um, for example, if we're looking at an inherited retinal dystrophy, is it something that's isolated to the eye or could it be part of a bigger syndrome with other associated health issues that could arise in the future? So is there other screening or testing? Um, it might be helpful to the ophthalmologist uh, in possibly determining future management or screening. Um, uh, genetic testing, if we are able to come to an answer, could allow individuals to determine potential eligibility for research and clinical trials, or even just to know or understand if what they're reading about might be applicable to them. I think if we can come to a conclusion or an answer, it may help um, individuals uh, who are looking to join patient registries or support groups, although that can often be done just with a clinical diagnosis. Um, we do recognize that there are limitations of genetic testing, so it doesn't always yield an answer. It can be difficult sometimes to interpret results, um, and we also want to be aware of potential negative impacts of testing, uh, if there could be misunderstandings around the reason for pursuing genetic testing um, or the implications of it. So it's not looking for blame or shame of where did this come from. Sometimes it can just provide more helpful information. I hope you don't mind if I hone in on the counselor part of your genetic counselor job description. You know, a lot of people get these tests and then I am sure there is an emotional fallout. I'm thinking about parents who feel 
guilty about, you know, maybe passing something on to their kids. And, you know, even between siblings, we know that siblings don't have exactly the same genetic makeup. So maybe one sibling has an eye condition that the other one doesn't. How do you have conversations with families, especially parents, about the results of these genetic tests? Again, I think uh, definitely a good question. And everybody is coming from a different sort of background or story and understanding that we do try to focus in to say that um, we all have changes in our genes. Uh, sometimes they occur in parts of a gene that it doesn't change how it functions. Um, we all are carriers of several different genetic conditions, but we have no way of knowing that. Um, we can't choose which genes we pass on to our, our children. Um, it's, it's an unknown. Uh, it's nothing you know that anybody did or didn't do before or during a pregnancy um, that caused their genetic information to change or to get passed on. So I think we try to assuage some of that. It's not looking for guilt or blame or shame. It's sort of saying we all have genetic changes and we don't know that we carry, carry them. Um, mm. Trying to assess, do they need other resources um, if it's uh, if they're having a difficult time, sort of what does the ophthalmology team have available or do they need, you know, assistance from other parents, support groups or other individuals, et cetera. That's a great point. And, you know, one of the things that I've often come up against when I've tried to broach uh, genetic testing with my family and friends is there's a lot of fear around it. A, people don't understand it. Hopefully, you know, our conversation so far has helped to shed light on some of the, the mystery. But beyond that, people are really nervous, Jill, about uh, something called genetic discrimination. And so they'll say, you know what, I don't want to get tested because I might face discrimination from an employer or I might get uh, or my, my health insurance premium might go up because I'll find a pre existing condition. How do you address those questions when I'm sure though they are inevitably put to you? I think that definitely people, uh, depending on sort of why they're coming to see us in genetics, but if somebody already has a, a diagnosis of a health condition that's genetic, mm -hmm. that doing genetic testing will not change that. So it would be the same for insurance or employers if you already have an actual diagnosis. Um, knowing that it's caused by genetics versus not uh, won't really change things. However, there was um, sometimes when it comes more to predictive testing, meaning testing before symptoms start with a genetic condition, people have had a lot of concerns around that. There is now in Canada the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, and as part of that act, um, we try to explain that this act, it helps to protect individuals from the use of their genetic test results outside areas of medical care, such as insurance and employment. So basically, with this act, sort of insurance companies and employers cannot request or require that a person undergoes a genetic test, and they cannot request or require the disclosure of any previous or future genetic tests. Um, uh, without that person's explicit consent with regard to that. So sometimes genetic testing, it won't affect insurance or employment because someone already has an actual diagnosis of the condition, so finding that it's genetic. And now if someone is looking at predictive testing to determine if they might develop a genetic condition, insurance companies are not supposed to access that information unless the person specifically 
actually request that they do. Jill, thank you so much. This was such a wide-ranging and informative conversation, and our time has flown by, but it was a lot of fun getting to talk to you today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. I'm Chuita Gupta. In this special one-hour episode presented in collaboration with Fighting Blindness Canada, we are discussing genetics and the human eye. We've already heard from a researcher and a genetics counselor on the program, and we've now got a couple of other steps to take. After receiving a diagnosis of a genetic eye disease, people are often unsure about what to do next. One option is to have your name added to the Fighting Blindness Canada patient registry. My next guest is Sherry Shaw. She is Manager of Health Information at FBC. She's here to fill us in on the workings of the patient registry and the benefits of putting your name on it. She joins us today from Toronto. Sherry Shaw, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you so much. So what do you do in your role as the manager of uh, health information at Fighting Blindness Canada? What exactly does your role entail? So I serve the community by helping them find resources and answers to their vision health questions. So when someone calls or emails me with a question about their eye health, I use education resources that we have online on our website or other trusted resources to find the answers to their questions. And then I help Mm -hmm. them understand those answers. And it's really important that I use sources that I trust that I would be comfortable sharing with the person on the other line because I want them to know that you know I'm I'm coming from a trusted source so mm-hmm. and there's a lot of misleading and incorrect information on the internet as I'm sure you know <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think one of the health information line's greatest purpose is helping people figure out what questions to ask their doctor. That's one thing that I do a lot is I help them understand their disease. I help them understand what they're really trying to get answered and then how to pose that in a question for their doctor. Because when you're in a 10 minute appointment with your, with your doctor, who's very busy, it can be hard. It can be intimidating and overwhelming to try to get your question out or even figure out what that question may be. So I try to help people prepare for their questions um, or for their appointments to get their questions answered. And then I'm also here after their appointment to answer any further questions that they have. See, I think you and I are sharing a brain because one of the things I really wanted to ask you about is this propensity that a lot of us have. I know I do this all the time. Um, I have a headache or I have a stomach ache and I go straight to Dr. Google and I start like Mm -hmm. frantically looking up information and, you know, my stomach ache could be anything from an ulcer to cancer. How likely, I mean, how much information, there, there must be a lot of information out there about eye conditions. To what extent is that information trustworthy? For an, for an ordinary person who gets on Google and starts Googling, how would you evaluate the information out there? And if people, you know, we obviously encourage them to call you, but if they try to research things on their own, what are some of the things they should try and keep in mind to make sure that the information they're looking at online is in fact trustworthy and credible? I think that's a really good question. I think that When I search for something online, I mean, I'm pretty used to it. So I I know sort of the keywords that I'm looking for. And I also know 
the trusted sources that I like to look at. Um, so there's, you know, a few websites that I tend to gear towards because I know that their information is founded in science and it's clear and understandable. But when someone's, when someone's looking, um, I mean, I personally never recommend that someone Google symptoms that they have because symptoms can mean so many different things. And, mm-hmm. you know, the severity, the, the length of time, how quickly they came on, um, whether you have any other underlying diseases, like there's just so many things to, you know, that's what doctors are there for. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think that you can, you can go down a rabbit hole on the internet if you are looking, you know, doing a symptom checker. But when you're looking at eye diseases and you're looking at more information about eye diseases, the information is pretty good, um, I would say. You know, we try really hard on our website, and I've been working since since I joined FBC. I've been working on building out our education resources to to help people have that one source of information. Um, and it also helps me when I'm answering questions to say, yes, we have something on that on our website. But you know, when you're looking for information on eye diseases, it's it's decent, I would say. Mm-hmm. So earlier in the program, we were talking to Lance Dessette, and he got so excited about clinical trials. He said, you know, it's really expanding. Five or 10 years ago, there was hardly anything. And now there are all these clinical trials happening. Um, and he got really enthusiastic, which is why I've gotten really enthusiastic about cl- clinical trials. If I wanted to get information about some clinical trial uh, that, that uh, you know, around gene therapies, for example, that might be relevant to me or, you know, people in my life, how would I go about doing that? Is that something you could help us out with? Absolutely. So that's another major question that I answer on the health information line. I get lots of questions saying, you know, what trials are out there? What's for me? Um, so the first thing would be, it's not mandatory, but it is helpful if I know your gene or if, if you, you're happy to share the gene that you have. And if you don't, then I, um, like if the person who's contacting me doesn't know their gene, then usually I'll go down that route and talk about genetic testing. I can still look for clinical trials for the disease, but um, a lot of clinical trials and research studies are currently are gene specific. They're not all gene specific, but a lot of them are so you know it is easier for me to find information about that and the website clinicaltrials.gov is usually where i find most of the trials um and it's usually where most trials are listed if they're recruiting people it's it's one place to go however that website is overwhelming even for me (laughs) it can be (laughs) overwhelming and complicated and it's not monitored so anybody can post on there. So I really, I tell people, you know, I have a whole disclaimer for people who, who want to go on to clinical trials themselves and look for, for trials. I say, you know, talk to your doctor. Don't do anything before you talk to your doctor. Um, and a lot of my conversations about clinical trials end up being talking about what it's like to participate in a clinical trial, what it means and, um, you know, what the next steps are for them. Uh, Word on the street is that Fighting Blindness Canada maintains a patient registry. What is that? So we have Fighting Blindness Canada developed a national patient registry for inherited retinal diseases in, I think it was like 2006. And the registry is a secure medical database 
where Canadians submit information about their IRD. They consent to join the registry and then they, they, in, they input their information or they send their information in. And the information is used to connect participants with relevant clinical trials. As well, the registry helps us learn more about the Canadian landscape of inherited retinal diseases, which is crucial to drive site-saving research, influence healthcare decision-making, and improve access to new treatments. So the information that's collected about participants is de-identified, which means you take any identifying information out of it and then add it to the database. And then the information becomes searchable by our clinicians who are running the registry. So if something were to come up, like a new clinical trial opportunity or, uh, for example, Luxterna, when it was approved, uh, the clinicians will search the database and reach out to either the patient directly or the clinical clinician in charge of that patient. I can certainly see the research benefit with having all of that information at your fingertips if you're a researcher or even a clinician. But what about the individual? Why should they get a genetic test? And if they find something, why should they put their names on the registry? There's a number of benefits to genetic testing. Um, I'm not sure if if Jill went through this, but I'll, I can go through it again. So uh, learning more about your disease can help you understand your symptoms, your prognosis or outcomes, and help you make peace with what's happening. It's, you know, knowledge is power. So knowing a little mm-hmm. bit more in something that you have no control over can, can help, you know, mentally. And it's also important, you know, when planning your future, like family planning, to know if there may be a risk of passing your gene on to your children so that you can plan for that. And that being said, there's still, when you get your genetic testing, there's always a chance that you won't return or they, you won't get a result. Um, so this happens about right now in inherited retinal disease genetic testing, it happens about 30 to 40% of the time. Mm-hmm. And it just means that they weren't able to determine the gene that's causing your IRD. Um, this is still an important result, and you should talk to your genetic counselor about what this result means. We have more information on our website as well. And then joining the patient registry is like putting your hand up in a crowded room and saying, hey, I'm here. Don't forget about me. And mm-hmm. we need your help. We, we can't advocate for you if we don't know that you exist. So the patient registry is, you know, joining the patient registry is telling us that you exist and allowing us to advocate on your behalf. Well, now you brought up my favorite word, which is advocacy. So let me just go there for just a a minute there. So if people put their names on this registry and you have all of this information about the incidence of inherited retinal diseases, for example, what sort of advocacy comes out of that? Well, we can advocate for new treatments that, you know, trying to get new treatments to come to Canada. And, um, you know, when, if someone, a researcher were to contact us and say, you know, we're thinking of bringing a clinical trial to Canada, do you have any patients? You know, we could say yes or no, and how many patients and, you know, where they happen to be. Like, it's just, it's just a way for everybody to work together. Researchers want to work together to find the answer it's i I don't think it's as like competitive as Mm. as people think it's you know really everybody wants to work together for the same goal Mm -hmm. and then you know like for example um you know when luxterna was coming and being approved by health canada and you know we needed to to advocate about why 
it should be approved in Canada? Why should people be available? You know, why should it be available? Uh, you know, we had to make sure that are there patients here? Will they benefit? And so knowing how many patients we have in Canada is important. You've talked about so many resources and so many different websites today. If we wanted to follow up on any of this information and learn more about any of these resources, how do we go about doing that? We are building out our education resources, like I mentioned, on our website uh, every every week, every month. We're trying to add new new pages, and they are built on the questions that people are asking through the health information line. So it's relevant to everybody, you know, who's, who's contacting us. And then you can always contact me uh, at the health information line if you have more questions. I am not a medical professional, so I don't answer specific questions about someone's medical history, but I can help you find resources to answer your questions and learn more about clinical trials, genetic testing, patient registry, finding a doctor, finding other support services, um, or if you saw something in the news and you want to know more. So I get a really wide range of questions into the line, and I really do try my very best to help answer in some way. Now, before we let you go, do you want to give us the number for the health information line so people can give you a call? And also just let us know what your hours of work are. Yes. So it's the phone number is one eight eight eight. Six two six two nine nine five, and I'll give the email as well. It's health h e a l t h info i n f o at fightingblindness.ca, and all that information also you can find on our website. And the health information line is always open. The phone number is a straight to voicemail. So I get the voicemails and then I call them back. Um, and for emails and and phone, it's it's a few days lead time, you know. It gives you time Don't. to research, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm trying to answer the questions and make sure that I'm prepared for when I'm calling or emailing back. Yeah, the only reason I asked is because I worked on, a, on an information line as well. And people are like, why haven't you called me back in five seconds? Okay, well, Sherry, thank you very much. It was thank really you. great chatting with you. Lots of good information. Thanks a lot, eh? Thank you so much. I'm Joyita Gupta. In these last few minutes, we're going to check in with Fighting Blindness Canada to find out about some of the programming they're offering into the fall and winter of 2021. Joining me now, as she always does, is Larissa Munez, who is the Director for Research and Mission Programming at FBC, and she's in Toronto. Hi, Larissa. Did you have a good summer? I did. Thank you so much for having me. I actually just got back from a canoe trip up north in Tamagami, which was amazing. So just getting back into work. Oh, sounds amazing. Hey, listen, so I know FBC does a ton of research. Tell us a little bit about what's coming up in the fall in terms of your research activities. Yeah, we're actually really excited this year because we are holding over three research competitions in the fall, which is a lot for us. So we really feel like we're driving forward our mission, which is primarily to fund vision research. So for our three competitions, researchers have put in applications. They're currently being reviewed by expert reviewers, and we're really excited to announce some results in the fall and the winter. And we've also launched a really exciting new event, which is half research competition, half awareness building. It's called Eye on the Cure. And the goal is really to support young vision researchers who are early in their career, but also to sort of teach um, everybody out there about how exciting vision research is and why they should care. So we have um, identified four finalists, and they're going to compete head-to-head 
in an event to explain their research to a panel of judges, and it will be broadcast in a virtual event in November. So we're sort of thinking about this as like a Dragon's Den meets TED Talk. And so we invite people to buy a ticket to this November virtual event so you can, of course, support vision research. But also, if you buy a ticket, you have the chance to vote on which researcher you think should win the People's Choice Award. So um, just a really great opportunity for people to learn more about some of the vision research out there and have their say about what they think is important. So, yeah, so we're really excited about that. There'll be more information on our website soon. I love it. Uh, You know, the other pillar of the work that FBC does is a lot of fundraising on behalf of Vision Research in Canada. Give us the lowdown. What's coming up in the fall? Yeah, yeah. So we couldn't support all the amazing researchers without raising money from our generous donors. So we have a few things that are coming up. The first is a new 50-50 raffle. This is only for Ontario residents. Um, but you can purchase a ticket and you have the opportunity to win 50% of the total money that's raised. And so the final draw is coming up real quick. It's on Wednesday, so Wednesday, September 1st. So you can go to fbcraffle.ca to, to buy a ticket or to find out more. And one of our sort of um, premier events is our comedy event, which is a virtual again this year, of course. It's called Comedy from the Couch. And what is um, really interesting and exciting this year is that we've been able to partner with Just for Laughs. So they are helping us put together mm. a really um, exciting virtual comedy night Again, all to raise money for vision research. You can go to comicvision.ca to um, to learn more and to buy tickets if you're interested. Who said vision loss isn't a laughing matter, right? Hey, listen, Larissa, as we wrap it up here, uh, just tell me a little bit about what you're doing on the public uh, education front, because I know that's something you and I often like to chat about. Definitely. We took a little bit of a break over the summer, but we're coming back in the fall um, as people are starting to come back indoors. So we have our viewpoint events, which are our educational webinars. And so if um, any listeners have enjoyed um, this segment where they learned about genetics, I think they'll really enjoy our first segment, which is on September 14th, where we're going to have three researchers, um, FBC-funded researchers, who are going to talk about their research into genetic eye diseases. So that's the first one. Mm. And then we'll also have webinars in November and December about diabetes and other types of research. So um, stay tuned for those. And our Young Leaders events are coming back as well. So this is for um, young people who are 15 to 30 who are blind or partially sighted, and we give them the chance to network and to develop skills to support their career. So we have a webinar on September 23rd, which is about um, entrepreneurship and the side hustle, and I do not have a side hustle, so I probably need to listen to this one too, and a virtual summit, which will be taking place over um, October 24th to, or 22nd to 24th. And so for all of these events, both the fundraising events as well as the education events, if you go to fightingblindness.ca slash events, you can find out more information and you can register there. Thanks a lot, eh? Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Larissa Munez, who is the Director for Research and Mission Programming at FBC. That is it for our episode today. If you missed any of our conversation about genetics and the human eye, you can check out the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. I'd like to thank all my guests on the program today. Each brought something unique to this special episode. Lance Dissette, Jill B.S., Larissa Mones, of course, and Sherry Shaw from Fighting Blindness Canada, with a special thanks to Morgan Einson and the rest of the team that worked so hard at FBC to put these special episodes together. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is the technical producer for The Pulse. Andy Frank is the manager at AMI-audio, and Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.